Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! We rely on your support to produce our independent journalism. Please do your part today by donating at democracynow.org. And thank you so much. This is Democracy Now! There has been this um, traumatic history of Black and Indigenous women's interactions with the Kansas City Police Department, um, one in which women have been violated um, emotionally, physically. Um, and so there is this distrust uh, amongst law enforcement and people in our community. When a black woman in Kansas City, Missouri, escaped from a white man she says held her captive for nearly a month, she helped to break open a story police had adamantly denied. As community members had raised alarm that black women and girls were being disappeared, possibly by a serial killer, police said the reports were completely unfounded. Now they've arrested the woman's kidnapper, and she says he killed several women. We'll speak with the community activist as well as the founder of the black-led independent Kansas City Defender newspaper, which helped raise alarm. Then, with midterm elections three weeks away, a new report links reported hate crimes against Asian Americans to anti-China rhetoric used on the campaign trail. We'll look at a new PBS documentary called Rising Against Asian Hate One Day in March. Go back to whatever Asian country you belong in. China flu Violence and bias against our community is is nothing new. It becomes inflamed uh, whenever there's something that Americans don't like. And on the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis, as nuclear powers ratchet up tensions in the war in Ukraine, anti-nuclear protests call on the U.S. and world leaders to defuse nuclear war. Medical possibility of a nuclear weapon being detonated by accident, by design, is not zero. If it's not zero, it's inevitable. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The United Nations is calling for armed action in Haiti amidst worsening violence and instability as gangs continue to control much of the country. A week-long blockade of a key port in Port-au-Prince by gangs has led to a critical shortage of fuel, food and water for millions of people, and has hindered efforts to respond to a new cholera outbreak in Haiti. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres addressed the crisis Monday. It's an absolutely nightmarish situation for the population of Haiti, especially Port-au-Prince. I believe that we need not only to strengthen the police, strengthening it with training, with equipment, with a number of other measures, but that in the present circumstances, we need an armed action to release the port and to allow for a humanitarian corridor to be established. 
The United States and Canada ship military equipment to Haiti over the weekend after the government of U.S.-backed Prime Minister Ariel Henry called for international involvement to combat gang activity. People have taken to the streets in response, protesting foreign military aid and occupation and demanding the resignation of Henry. This is a protester in Port-au-Prince. No, no to the Canadians. No to the Americans. You are monsters. You don't have solutions. You are chaos. You are behind the gangsterization of crime. You are giving arms to our brothers. In Ethiopia, rebels in the northern Tigray region say Ethiopian troops backed by Eritrean soldiers have seized a key city amidst heavy fighting northwest of the Tigrayan capital. Aid workers report thousands of civilians have begun fleeing the fighting over the weekend amidst fears they could face mass killings and sexual violence. The United Nations warned Monday the situation in Tigray is spiraling out of control, with civilians paying a horrific price. The head of the UN's World Health Organization, Dr. Tedros Adhanom Gabriasis, who's from Tigray, warned Ethiopia's military is carpet-bombing whole cities. He said one million people are at risk of starvation after a 17-month blockade left food and medicine in short supply. Russia's military has launched a fresh wave of long-range attacks on Ukraine's critical infrastructure, cutting off water and power to large parts of the country. Authorities say at least two people were killed in today's attacks on Kyiv, a day after Russian drone attacks left five people dead in Ukraine's capital city. President Volodymyr Zelensky said 30 percent of Ukraine's power stations have been destroyed by the latest attacks, causing massive blackouts. Ukraine's culture minister says the orchestra conductor, Yuri Karpatenko, was shot and killed in his home by Russian soldiers in the Russian-occupied city of Kherson. The 46-year-old conductor reportedly refused to take part in a concert meant to show support for Russia's annexation of the southern port city. An Associated Press investigation has found thousands of Ukrainian children have been deported to Russia or Russian-occupied parts of Ukraine since the invasion. The AP reports Russian officials have frequently lied to the children that they weren't wanted by their parents, used them for propaganda, and have given them Russian families and citizenship. In Russia, at least 13 people, including three children, were killed Monday when a fighter jet crashed outside a nine-story apartment building in a city near Russia's maritime border with Ukraine. Video of the incident shows at least one of the plane's pilots ejected moments before the crash in the town of Yisk caused a large residential building to erupt in flames. Meanwhile, Russia and Ukraine have carried out another prisoner swap. On Monday, Russia released 108 Ukrainian women held as POWs, while Ukraine freed 100 Russians, including dozens of sailors from commercial vessels held since February. At the Kremlin, a spokesperson for President Vladimir Putin said today the four territories of Ukraine Russia recently claimed to have annexed will fall under the protection of Russia's nuclear arsenal. Russia's warning came as the United States and NATO launched nuclear war games in the skies above Belgium, the United Kingdom and the North Sea. Fourteen countries are taking part in the exercise named Steadfast Noon, which involves long-range B-52 bomber surveillance and tanker aircraft and the latest generation fighter jets. Russia's military is set to stage its own annual large-scale nuclear exercise called Thunder along Russia's northwestern coast. Late in the broadcast, we'll speak with Norman Solomon of Roots Action, who says, don't just worry about nuclear war, do something to help prevent it. 
Nigeria's government says the death toll from historic flooding has topped 600, with more than two and a half million people impacted and over 80,000 homes destroyed. The floods have also inundated 266,000 acres of farmland at a time of soaring prices and deep food insecurity. Nigeria's flooding comes as much of East Africa is experiencing a prolonged deadly drought. The British charity Oxfam warned recently one person is likely to die of hunger every 36 seconds between now and the end of the year in the region. In Georgia, more than 125,000 people cast ballots Monday as early voting began three weeks ahead of November's general election in the United States. Monday's record turnout was nearly double the number of ballots cast on the first day of voting during midterm elections four years ago. Voters in some precincts reported lines of up to two hours. On Monday evening, Republican Governor Brian Kemp faced off against Democratic gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams for a debate in Atlanta. It's a rematch of 2018's election, when Abrams fell just 55,000 votes shy of defeating Kemp. Her campaign has focused largely on voting rights and racial equity. But let's be clear about ballot access and voter access. Brian Kemp was the secretary of state, and he has assiduously denied access to the right to vote. We know that the right to vote is the only way that we can make the changes we need in the state, the only way we can make the changes we need in this country, whether it's access to the right to an abortion, the ability to take care of our families. We need a governor who believes in access to the right to vote right. and not in voter suppression, which is the hallmark of Brian Kemp's leadership. Ohio's top contenders for an open U.S. Senate seat squared off Monday night for their second and final debate. Democratic Congressmember Tim Ryan's challenging Republican J.D. Vance, a venture capitalist and author of the best-selling book Hillbilly Elegy. Vance won the Republican nomination in May after right-wing tech billionaire Peter Thiel gave his campaign $10 million and after he won the endorsement of former President Trump. On Monday, Vance's opponent Tim Ryan called out Vance for a 2006 message in which Vance blasted Trump, comparing him to Adolf Hitler. You were calling Trump America's Hitler. Then you kissed his ass. true. It is true. And then you kissed his ass. And then he endorsed you. And you said he's the greatest president of all time. Arizona gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake is the latest Republican to uphold Trump's lie that the 2020 election was stolen. Lake also refused to say whether she would accept the results of her own election during a CNN interview Sunday. My question won't. is, will you accept the results of your election in November? I'm going to win the election and I will accept that result. If you lose, will you accept that? I'm going to win the election and I will accept that result. In New Mexico, asylum seekers held at the Torrance County Detention Facility say they're being retaliated against for speaking out about extremely dangerous conditions and for participating in a hunger strike that was broken up last week. This is Orlando de los Santos, a 39-year-old asylum seeker from the Dominican Republic who helped organize the hunger strike and now faces deportation. He's been detained at Corrance, which is run by the private prison corporation Core Civic since July. Lawyers and supporters are demanding ICE, that's Immigration and Customs Enforcement, immediately halt his removal scheduled for today. Most of the people who participated in the hunger strike have been deported. Sadly, one of my friends who didn't want to be deported was taken by force and chains. Everyone is terrified because of the retaliation we faced over the hunger strike. ICE and Torrance guards know that we are willing to reveal the truth 
about what actually happens here, and they want to silence us. They want to shut me up. The Supreme Court on Monday rejected an appeal in a case seeking to grant U.S. citizenship to people born in American Samoa, a territory occupied by the United States. The court also refused to reconsider overturning a series of racist U.S. Supreme Court rulings known as the insular cases that have been used for over a century to legally justify discrimination against people in American Samoa, Puerto Rico, and other U.S.-occupied territories. American Samoa is the only U.S.-occupied territory where people are not granted U.S. citizenship at birth. People may apply for citizenship only if they relocate to the U.S. mainland, an immigration process that can take years and is not guaranteed. One of the plaintiffs, John Fittisemanu, said in a statement, It's a punch in the gut. I was born on U.S. soil, have a U.S. passport, pay my taxes like everyone else, but because of a discriminatory federal law, I am not recognized as a U.S. citizen, he said. And the White House said Monday President Joe Biden will host Israel's President Isaac Herzog during an official visit next week. His planned trip will come less than a week before Israel holds nationwide legislative elections November 1st. Meanwhile, Australia's government has reversed a decision by the conservative former Prime Minister Scott Morrison to recognize West Jerusalem as the undivided capital of Israel, even though Israel has illegally occupied East Jerusalem since 1967. Morrison's move came after President Trump relocated the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, sparking international protests. The Australian Foreign Minister Penny Wong spoke from Canberra earlier today. Today, uh, the government has reaffirmed Australia's previous and long-standing position that Jerusalem is a final status issue, uh, and a final status issue that should be resolved as part of any peace negotiations between Israel and the Palestinian peoples. This reverses the Morrison government's recognition of West Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. And Juan, happy belated birthday. Oh, thanks, Amy. Appreciate it. <laughs> My big seven five. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. A warning to our listeners and viewers. We begin today's show with a story that includes graphic details of sexual violence. On October 7th, a 22-year-old black woman in Excelsior Springs, Missouri, escaped from a white man who she says held her captive in his basement for nearly a month, whipping, torturing and raping her repeatedly. The woman fled and knocked on a neighbor's door for help after the man left the house to take his son to school. About 7.30 a.m., I faintly heard a young female um, saying, help me. Lisa Johnson was the first person to encounter the woman and to help rescue her. She told the Excelsior Citizen the woman was nearly naked as she pleaded for help. It was actually— I like an S&M dress. It was plastic, black plastic, very short. It wasn't shorts. It was a dress. That's all she had on. And the duct tape around her neck and the collar. Um, and she was, it was restricted. It was a metal collar. It looked like a shot collar, a homemade one at that. I seen the, her wrists were pretty messed up and her ankles. Mm -hmm. Asked what she needed. It was obvious. I didn't really have to ask at that point. I just started looking. Um, first thing I did was tell her I was calling the police. That kind of agitator, 
she told her that if I called the police, that he would kill both of us. If you found out, um, she said he already killed her two friends that she was with. The woman who escapes that other black women were killed by her abductor. She's not spoken publicly. She's not been named. But she helped break open a story that the Kansas City police had vehemently denied. As community members raised alarm that black women and girls were being disappeared in September, possibly by a serial killer, police responded by saying the reports were, quote, completely unfounded. Some of the concerns were raised in a now viral video by Bishop Tony Caldwell of Eternal Life Church by the independent publication, The Kansas City Defender. I am a little upset right now. The reason I'm upset is because we got four young ladies that have been murdered within the last week uh, here off of 85th and Prospect. We got a serial killer again. And ain't nobody saying nothing. The media is not covering it. We got three young ladies that are missing. Ain't nobody saying a word. What is the problem? Why Why can't we get some cooperation? Where's our community leaders? Where's our activists? Where's our public officials? Where's our police department? Where is those folks at? In President Gardens. Come on now. We, we need to start knocking doors. We need to start making sure that this is uh, brought to the light. We cannot continue to let this happen. After that video went viral in September, the Kansas City Police Department spokesperson insisted there was, quote, no basis to support this rumor, unquote. But police have since arrested 39-year-old Timothy Hazlitt of Excelsior Springs, Missouri, for kidnapping and torturing the woman who escaped. The Kansas City Defender has reported on his social media posts saying they show the sexual predator was, quote, a white supremacist who believed we are in a race war. For more, we're joined in Kansas City by two guests, Ryan Sorrell, founder of the black-led independent newspaper, The Kansas City Defender, and Justice Gatson, executive director of the Real Justice Network, a black woman-led organization based in Kansas City, Missouri. Welcome you both to Democracy Now! I mean, Ryan, your black-led independent newspaper has been leading the charge on this as the police department adamantly denied there was any issue until this woman escaped with chains. Can you take us through this story and not only her story, but she said to the woman who helped her that her friends were killed? Absolutely. I mean, I think that this is one of the most horrific uh, tragedies that I have ever come across in my lifetime. I know that when we first reported this story, we received it from Numerous community members who are making these reports and testimonies is what we refer to them as. The police department refers to them as rumors, largely because they come from the black community. But we reported these reports and testimonies in mid to late September. And, you know, rather than reaching out to us to understand and get, gather more information about where we got this information from, rather than reaching out to the community to understand where these concerns were coming from, the police department, three days after we reported this initially, uh, you know, came out and literally just said these are completely unfounded rumors is what they called them. And as you mentioned, they said that there are no there's no basis to support these claims. And so uh, to me and to us and our community, the number one problem with 
how the police department handled this situation was that they called it completely unfounded without doing any type of investigation at all. And it seemed, you know, much more like they were actually trying to discredit our community voices and to silence our community voices than to, uh, you know, look after what was actually happening in our community. And to us, that's a testament to the type of anti-blackness that is prevalent in our police department, which is also currently under federal investigation for racism and discrimination. And so once these new revelations came out, I actually reached out to the police department to see if they would update their statement or if they still maintained their initial position that our reports were completely unfounded. And they said that they do still maintain, you know, regardless of these new revelations that clearly show that they were wrong. They said they still maintain their position that what we reported, they said specifically, was completely unfounded. Uh, and so we think that this is a larger conversation even beyond this specific situation. We think that this speaks to the silencing uh, the violent silencing of black women specifically of the black community at large here in Kansas City. And this is actually something that has been happening since the inception of the Kansas City Police Department. And uh, we, we know that this is not the first time that this has ever happened. Uh, and, and Ryan, I wondered if you could elaborate on that, some of the department's legacy of inflicting violence on the black community and also uh, at, and at times even police officers themselves implicated. Absolutely. I mean, our police department, as I mentioned, is under uh, federal investigation at this very moment. Uh, the federal investigation was launched a little bit over a month ago. Uh, even just this past year, there have been multiple cases where the police department has been indicted for corruption. Uh, for for instance, uh, a situation last year where the very first police, uh, police officer in Kansas City Police Department history was finally indicted for the murder of an unarmed black man. And in that case, this was the case of Cameron Lamb. In that case, it was proven in the courtroom that the Kansas City Police Department planted evidence. They planted a gun uh, and said that it was from Cameron Lamb. In another instance, a man named Malcolm Johnson was murdered in a gas station and the police department in the official police reports said that Malcolm Johnson was was armed and that he was engaged in a shootout with the police department. And it wasn't until weeks later when employees of that gas station leaked surveillance footage that showed that not only was Malcolm Johnson unarmed the entire time, but that he was actually being held down by three police officers. And one of the police officers accidentally shot another police officer and then murdered Malcolm. And so this uh, pattern uh, of what's taking place in our city with the police department lets us know that we have no expecta expectation any longer that they have the capability to be able to provide safety for people in our communities. And so that's why people like uh, you'll hear from Justice Gatson from the Real Justice Network, these these black women who are creating infrastructure in public safety infrastructure for, that we can create for ourselves in our community so that we don't have to rely on this police department that we know is very clearly and blatantly anti-black uh, blatantly racist and, and is currently being inv investigated for these things. So, yeah, you mentioned Justin Gatson, uh, uh, Justice Gatson. I'd like to bring you into the conversation. Uh, welcome to Democracy Now. And could you talk about the uh, the this uh, the Excelsior Springs neighborhood where Timothy Haslett lived uh, and Prospect Avenue, the area where uh, the 22 year old black woman who escaped his house was from? Yeah, sure. So Excelsior Springs is like a suburb of Kansas City. Um, so down on Prospect area, the 80s, that would be considered in the city of Kansas City. And so you'll have to drive out of the city 
into Excelsior Springs. Uh, and, and so it's a smaller community in Excelsior Springs, a quieter community. And quite frankly, I could see um, a, an easier space to get away with something like this. Um, and, and so, yeah, um, that that's the that's the community that's the landscape um this woman was snatched off of the streets in the city and driven to a suburb and uh forced to stay there for nearly a month um and and you know be the subject of sexual violence and abuse now, Justice, I mean, this isn't a police department when asked about it um, uh, by uh, Ryan's newspaper, when asked, when Ryan himself asked, the black-led independent newspaper, the Kansas City Defender, um, about these accusations that women and girls were disappearing. It wasn't just we're investigating and they dragged their feet. This was them adamantly denying this. And not even taking it back to this point, though they did indict this man, um, who it's now believed is a white supremacist, this incredibly brave woman saving herself, escaping in chains when mm -hmm. she, he was taking his kid to school. What do you know about perhaps what she referred to, other women who he killed? That is something that we we are we are unclear about. Like we don't have that evidence. I believe her. Like I trust survivors, um, so I I believe her. But we don't know. Like there have been no reports from the police about any additional women being found. We just don't know yet uh, about that part. But the overall story and how the white press uh, took the police at its word, I mean, they set the agenda by saying oh this God. is completely unfounded, <laughs> as opposed to we're see. investigating. I mean, that, that's what they do. Um, they take the police where they do no real um, investigation. Um, I, I would say journalistic integrity is lacking and has been. It's something that I'm always calling the media out here about um, because they do kind of just take the word of the cops and that's what they run with. The our community is ignored. Oftentimes we're not listened to. Um, I'm not surprised that um, women and mages, black mages in particular, are silenced. Mages means marginalized genders. And uh, because that has happened, the, just the disrespect and the tone in which police officers conduct themselves in our community is atrocious. Just the, the very way they talk to us is unreal. And, and so that disrespect has been since forever. I mean, I've heard stories growing up. Um, I got to experience my own situations with police. I mean, I told one of your producers the other day about being 15 years old and having the police pull a gun out on me and friends walking down that prospect Avenue that, that this happens on. And so, you know, this is very, um, these speak to the traumas in our communities and they touch us. They touch us in very rare ways because we see it. We get stopped in the cars along with our men who get stopped. We see that trauma. We women are the ones who pick up all of the pieces of everything that's happening. Um, and, and so this has been historic. It has been ongoing. And, you know, I can't 
what I will speak to is that, I mean, honestly, there are people who come forward and maybe the police didn't believe Bishop Caldwell, who quite honestly is not of good character. And I would consider him, you know, to be somebody to, to not trust. And so I'm thinking that's probably what happened. But there were other voices speaking out that should have been listened to. And let's be real. Even before this, there was Candy Red who was murdered in Kansas City, a black transgender woman, um, 29 years old. And nobody has done a thing about it. There was another black woman murdered in Kansas City. And we believe we know who killed her. And nobody has done anything about it. This is ongoing. We have cases back in the 90s where black women have been murdered. And not to mention the Precious Doe case where the little girl who was abducted. Um, there was a citizen, Alonzo Washington, who actually broke that case. The police could not figure that out. Um, when we actually did have a serial killer along Prospect, the police didn't figure that out. It was the community who figured that out. And so we know for a long time that we've been keeping ourselves safe um, and that police, we haven't been able to trust them. They haven't um, shown us that we can trust them. Um, they won't even talk to us appropriately or listen to our concerns or complaints when we say that something is happening to us in our communities. And Justice, I'm wondering if you could talk about, you mentioned the police. Uh, there was a, a recent arrest of a Kansas City detective who was charged with assaulting and abusing black women for over a decade and faces uh, six yeah. counts of deprivation of civil rights. Can you talk about that case? I, I can, actually. Um, my, a friend of mine, her name is uh, Trisha Brisnell, who runs the Midwest Innocence Project, um, her client, Lamont McIntyre, um, while she was assisting him on his case, um, she met his mother, of course. And from there, she began to hear the stories about what was happening with black women in the community. Um, and it definitely bothered and angered her. Um, we're actually having an event today about it. But that police officer um, sexually abused um, women in the community. They would do things like um, say they would plant drugs on them. They'll put a case on them. Um, this is something that I have grown up hearing. This is something that I've been exposed to. So I know that it has happened and it does happen. And so this has been brought to the light, thankfully, that this has gone on. And so there's some advocacy around supporting the victims of this police officer, as well as holding him accountable. This is uh, Kansas City Detective Roger Golubsky. Yes. Well, I wanted to end with Ryan Sorrell. Um, these reports of the man who's been arrested in this particular case and not clear how many women are his victims, women and girls, um, but this whole issue of uh, him being a white supremacist, um, posting—you uh, posting that Haslett was a white supremacist who believed we're in a race war. Um, uh, he posted the race war started a long time ago. Uh, wake up, you dumb bee. In another post uh, saying he believed Breonna Taylor should deserve to die. Um, talk about this. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's all part of it. You know, this this is a, a case of, you know, racial terrorism uh, of, you know, sex crimes against black women specifically. And so I think that the fact that he is a white supremacist is not surprising in the least. Uh, we do know, as you mentioned, that he said we're in a race war. He said uh, that black people are lesser human beings. He said uh, when you start acting like humans, then uh, he'll start treating us like humans. And so I, I think that, you know, it's very unsurprising to us that uh, this man, Timothy Hazlitt Jr., is a white supremacist. And so I, I think once again, just to go back to what Justice said, uh, this conversation, uh, I think, is much larger than uh, this specific situation, this this absolutely horrific situation. And I think that uh, it's very unfortunate. And this is what I have been telling a lot of people that it's truly unfortunate that it required uh, this such a horrific tragedy to take place in order and, and for us to have to expose uh, how the police department operates, how the police operate. And I do want to reiterate as well that uh, even now, after it was clear that the white media outlets uh, helped silence the black community in this case, they're still, uh, even as recently as yes, last yesterday evening uh, and, and today, the white news outlets in our city continue to uh, print exactly and parrot exactly what the police are saying. And so really, it looks like already they have not learned anything at all from this situation. Uh, they continue to believe the police over the community and to con continue to silence the community. Um, and so I think, once again, that's standard journalistic practices in many cases for a lot of these local news outlets, for a lot of these white-owned news outlets. And so uh, we want to uh, continue to uplift the conversation around uh, what the work that women like Justice are doing uh, for for black women and, and to, continue to continue to uplift the conversation around how media outlets are complicit and uh, how these crimes and, the, and these horrific uh, acts of violence were allowed to continue to take place even after they were reported. We want to continue those conversations as well. Uh, but thank you all so much again. Ryan Sorrell, I want to thank you for being with us, founder and executive editor of the Kansas City Defender, and Justice Gadsden of the Real Justice Network, a black women-led organization in Kansas City. Next up, with midterm elections three weeks away, anti-China rhetoric used on the campaign trail linked to hate crimes against Asian Americans. We'll look at a new film, Rising Against Asian Hate. Stay with us.
Corey Wong and John Baptiste. The song is featured in the film we look at in this segment. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. With the midterm elections three weeks away, a new report warns candidates and elected officials not to use inflammatory rhetoric that contributes to hate-fueled attacks. The group Stop Asian Americans and Pacifica, uh, Pacific Islanders Hate, or Stop AAPI Hate, documents a trend of reported hate incidents on Asian Americans when politicians use inflammatory language, like blaming China for the COVID-19 pandemic, the economic downturn, and national security concerns. The report, called The Blame Game, finds more than 20 percent of Americans believe Asian Americans are at least partly responsible for COVID. This is nearly double from last year. On Monday, PBS explored the issue in a new documentary called Rising Against Asian Hate One Day in March. Breaking tonight, people shot and ate killed. At massage parlors. That was my mother. In Fulton County, all the victims are Asian American women. What did you do about hate crime? During a time where Asian Americans were being targeted. Maybe that's a question you should ask China. It was an example of what racism towards Asians could lead to. Our goal is to make sure people don't think that our community is invisible anymore. Rising Against Asian Hate focuses in part on the March 2021 attack in which eight people were shot and killed by a gunman targeting Asian-owned spas in Atlanta. Six of the people killed were women of Asian descent. The film features Robert Peterson, son of the late Young Ayu, who was one of eight people killed. That was when I started to do my hunt and search for my mother. I remember calling the sheriff's office, trying to identify the women. I don't think some of them believed that it was my mother when I was calling. They were like, yeah, these are Asian women. And I'm like, yes, my mother's Asian. My brother called me to get an update. Have I heard anything? What's going on? At that moment, I had just gotten off the phone with the medical examiner and, uh, she told me that, yes, they did have a body downtown of a woman named Young Yu. That was my mother. Go back to whatever Asian country you belong in. China flu shoved up your Taiwan sir. Violence and bias against our community is is nothing new. It becomes inflamed uh, whenever there's something that Americans don't like about Asia. So whether it's World War II and Pearl Harbor, or whether it's increased competition from Japan during the 80s, or whether it's 9-11, Americans are suffering and they feel pain and fear and I think it's acutely manifesting in the symptom of Asian hate. That's a clip from Rising Against Asian Hate, which premiered Monday on PBS. The film also explores what some say are difficulties in documenting hate crimes against Asian Americans. Revealed that prosecuting hate crimes aimed at Asian Americans presents unique challenges compared to other targeted groups. We had a lot of instances where there were nooses found in the workplace. We know what that means. It was geared towards intimidating black workers. In the Jewish community, 
there is the Nazi symbol. But towards Asian American community, we don't have one symbol or multiple symbols that, that really solidify the ideology against Asian Americans. So it makes it a little bit tougher. So you have to really look and dig to find um, evidence of that motive. For more, we're joined by Gina Kim, executive producer of the new documentary Rise Against Asian Hate, One Day in March, part of the PBS initiative called Exploring Hate. Gina, welcome to Democracy Now! Talk about the significance of this film coming out now as the political rhetoric escalates leading into the midterm elections in three weeks. Thank you, Amy. Um, I think it's important for us to remember at the height of the pandemic, scrolling through our phones and just seeing one horrific attack after another, um, elderly Asian Americans being brutalized, innocent women being, you know, attacked um, senselessly. And, you know, we felt that it was, you know, the the hate crimes against Asian Americans increased by over 300 percent in those two years. And and as we are entering the midterms, I think a lot of people have sort of forgotten that this issue um, is one of the most pressing issues in this country. I mean, when hate crimes, when, when crimes against Asian Americans are increasing by over 300 percent, that is startling. That is that is shocking. And so we felt that we had to document this moment and make sure that, you know, that people recognize that this is an issue that we need to confront as a nation. Well, and, you know, your your film talks about some of the uh, recent examples and going back to uh, the uh, anti-Japanese hysteria during World War II. But even further back, I mean, most Americans are not aware uh, that the first really racist immigration law, the Chinese Exclusion Act, happened in the 1880s, and that there were even uh, massacres of the Ch- Chinese Americans like Rock Springs. Uh, could you talk about some of that history that uh, most of us uh, would, have not been taught in school? Well, I have to say, I wasn't taught that in school. I grew up in a, a small town outside of Philadelphia, and I didn't know that history. I mean, I've learned it through the years, but the 1882 Asian American Exclusion Act, um, Asian Exclusion Act, I mean, you know, um, Chinese uh, people from China were not allowed to be citizens of this country until 1947, I believe. I mean, that's recent. That's not long, you know, long, a long time in our history. Um, these are the things that were not being taught in our schools. You know, I learned about Vincent Chin as an adult when people were, you know, uh, blaming the Japanese for taking auto worker jobs. Um, I learned about, you know, um, the internment camps later in life. And so this is an issue with this country that we don't want our history. And so that's why it was important for us to document this film um, for the future generation, for my son's generation. Um, we, you know, we see that that's changing and more and more stories are being heard. But, you know, without, you know, creating these stories and telling our stories, history will be repeated. Uh, we will make these mistakes again. And so we want to make sure that we brought this to, to, to you know, people's attention and brought this to light. Uh, Gina, the film is narrated by Sandra Oh. Um, mm-hmm. Take us back to that day in March when eight people were killed. Um, was it six of them women, seven of them Asian-American? Even then, the Atlanta police were saying this is not a hate crime. Ultimately, uh, one of them was thrown out, I think, the press spokesperson, because he was seen on social media wearing an anti-Asian T-shirt. But Talk about what happened and how this now very well-known massacre um, actually unfolded. 
You know, as I was mentioning before, we were seeing the ramping of the rhetoric, you know, calling the pandemic China virus and Kung flu. And we're seeing these attacks one after another on our social media feeds and seeing it in the news. And so when March 16th happened, I don't think a lot of people were necessarily surprised. I mean, absolutely devastated, of course, but not necessarily surprised. We sort of saw it coming. Um, and the, and the perpetrator, the, the person who killed these eight people, including six women of Asian descent, said that it was because of his sexual addiction. Well, you know, when he went to the first spot and killed the four four people, brutally murdered four people. He then drove 45 minutes to the next two spots where he killed additional four people. Um, and he passed many different, you know, spas and bars and other other um, businesses. And he targeted Asian-owned businesses. And he targeted Asian women. I mean, as we know, the stereotypes of Asian-American women in this country, it's, it's you know, it's, it's troubling. You know, women, Asian women are often thought of as hypersexualized or demure, submissive. And so, the fact that he targeted Asian women, I mean, there's no doubt that the intersection of race and gender is, um, you know, is there. Um, and, and it was, you know, troubling that, that I think the Asian American community was very troubled that the police immediately dismissed it, said it was not a hate crime, that you're right, the spokesperson for Cherokee County, the sheriff, um, you know, said that the, that Robert Long, um, the shooter was having a bad day. Um, and then later he posted, um, and, you know, China, COVID, China virus t-shirts on his, on his Facebook page. Um, so it was, you know, for a lot of Asian Americans, they remember that day. It, it is very remarkable how many people remember where they were that day when they heard about those, um, eight people who were killed, including the women, six women of Asian descent. I'm wondering your thoughts also. There have been many of, of video uh, videotaped incidents of individual violence against uh, uh, Asian Americans uh, in, the, in the past few years. And it's also not just uh, white Americans, but many black and Latino youth uh, coming from communities who themselves were discriminated against. Yet they are also uh, at times participating in this kind of violence. Your thought about this uh, issue of a uh, uh, of uh, attacks coming uh, 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 at times from the uh, from members of the black or Latino community as well. It's a complicated issue. I think there, you know, as you know, there have been um, a history of you know um, of mistrust between you know black and Asian communities, and I think that's changing. What we found in our film is that there's been a lot of solidarity, a lot of um, coming together the communities to say you know that this is not acceptable, and we can't we can't we can't um, let this go on. I mean, it's it's a, it's it's complicated, and you know we didn't have an opportunity this hour of film to go into it. But yes, you're right. I mean, not all the attacks are perpetrated by white people, but you know when you have when when we talked about um, when you talked about the report earlier from the um, Stop AAPI Hate um, group that said that you know perpetrators of Asian you know hate incidents are repeating the the rhetoric of politicians when when they're attacking people and calling, you know, and, and yelling out Kung flu and COVID um, China virus and and blaming China for the economic issues this country is facing and also the, um, you know, the security concerns, the national security concerns. I mean, that it translates, it tra trickles down, down. Words matter. Words have consequences and they're often dangerous. And um, and so and so we, you know, um, do you feel that with bringing this 
to light and to bring to talk about it and to have black and brown and Asian communities come together and, you know, and, and discuss these issue is one step in, in, in helping to stop what's happening. Gina Kim, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Executive producer of the new film, Rising Against Asian Hate, one day in March. It's premiered this week on PBS. Next up, as nuclear powers ratchet up tensions in the war in Ukraine, we speak to Norm Solomon of Roots Action, who says, don't just worry about nuclear war, do something to prevent it. Back in 30 seconds. Oh, my name, it ain't nothing. My age, it means less. The country I come from is called the Midwest. I start and brought up there the laws to abide. With God on our side, by Bob Dylan. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. As we reported in headlines, a spokesperson for President Vladimir Putin said today, the four territories of Ukraine Russia recently claimed to have annexed will fall under the protection of Russia's nuclear arsenal. Russia's warning came as the United States and NATO launched nuclear war games in the skies above Belgium, United Kingdom, and the North Sea. Russia's military is set to stage its own annual large-scale nuclear exercise called Thunder along Russia's northwestern coast. This comes as anti-nuclear activists gathered Friday in dozens of cities— in front of congressional offices across the United States, at the U.N. and elsewhere, to demand leaders defuse nuclear war. The protest coincided with the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis. For more, we're joined in Berkeley, California, by Norman Solomon, executive director of the Institute for Public Accuracy, co-founder of RootsAction.org. His latest piece for Common Dreams, Don't Just Worry About Nuclear War, Do Something to Help Prevent It. Um, why don't you take us back 60 years, talk about what unfolded over a month, and then make that connection to what we're seeing today, Norm. Well, you know, back in 1962, for 13 days, the world was really on a precipice of nuclear war. There were nuclear missiles that had been put in Cuba from then the Soviet Union. And because uh, Khrushchev and Kennedy, the leaders of the two governments, were willing to back down from a confrontation that's why we're able to even be here right now. Um, after that confrontation at a famous speech at American University, John Kennedy said it was essential for the survival of the world to not back the leader of another nuclear power into a corner. And yet what we see now this year is that the U.S. policy is exactly the opposite. As you alluded to uh, in the latest news, what we're seeing now is an escalation of a game of nuclear chicken. There's only one way to win, truly win, a game of nuclear chicken, and that's not to play it. But what the United States government and the Russian government are doing is going ahead to exacerbate and escalate a game of nuclear chicken that is not properly called a game. What's at stake is, according to the latest scientific studies, about 99% of humanity. If there's a thermonuclear war, 
then we can expect only 1% because of nuclear winter, only 1% of the human beings on this planet to survive. So when we see and hear all the rhetoric and the posturing going on from both sides, then we see how on autopilot this insanity is, insanity from both sides. And of course, and we should certainly make clear that what the Russian government is doing in Ukraine is reprehensible. There is no justification for it. This is an ongoing war crime from Russia in Ukraine. And they are making, the Kremlin is making, nuclear threats that are completely reckless. At the same time, there are things that the U.S. government can and should do that would reduce the chances of nuclear war, not only end this escalation of danger, but actually reduce it. Uh, treaties that the U.S. has pulled out of unilaterally, uh, the second President Bush pulled out of the ABM Treaty and a Ballistic Missile Treaty in 2002. Uh, Donald Trump in 2019 pulled out of the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. Both of those treaties were very important uh, to reduce the chances of nuclear war, including and especially in Europe. So I would sort of sum up that what we're seeing this week is further escalation. The war games, the nuclear war games that the United States has led, really, uh, beginning yesterday through NATO, is completely irresponsible. These annual, why do it now? This is the worst time to do it. And Russia, we know, uh, according to reports, will follow suit uh, later this month. So that's why RootsAction.org is launching today a campaign where people around the country are contacting their senators, their representatives, and saying, speak out against this war game madness that the United States is enabling through NATO and insist on genuine diplomacy to reach a ceasefire. This is what we need from constituents. And I would just sort of sum this up by silence equals death. We know that from AIDS activism going back decades Right now, that is global death, silence and passivity, which is what the U.S. mass media are encouraging, what the political bipartisan establishment is encouraging in the United States. We're supposed to sit back and watch while these irresponsible 535 people in Congress saying virtually nothing about the need to cancel these nuclear war games. Uh, Norm, I wanted to ask you about where the Democratic leadership is on this issue. As you mentioned, it was a Republican presidents, George Bush uh, and Donald Trump, who pulled out of prior treaties that were at least limiting or reducing uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, but there's been virtual silence from even pro supposed pro-peace members of uh, Congress uh, uh, on uh, where we're heading right now. And, and of course, there are some in the, in the third world who say this is a European war, just as World War One and World War Two were European wars that drew the rest of the world uh, into their conflicts. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm wondering what your sense is of where the progressives are in the Democratic Party right now. Yeah, it's a European war that's threatening uh, people all over the globe. The Democratic Party leadership is not providing leadership. They're simply going along with this autopilot, heading towards a pre precipice, really, of nuclear annihilation globally. Both parties are led by people and are populated in Congress by people who are checked out. 
they're part of this mentality that we go along to get along with the military industrial complex. There are billions and billions of dollars being made every month in profits by these major contractors. So, you know, we used to say during the Vietnam War, uh, war is profitable, invest your son. Well, now we could say that nuclear war preparation is profitable. These aerospace industry corporations are making huge killings in preparation for for omnicide. So this is what's uh, so troubling to so many people. And I would say, parenthetically, but importantly, we have a fascistic Republican Party. They should be defeated in the midterms. At the same time, we have to be very clear. The Democratic Party, like the Republican Party, is led by people who are leading us towards a nuclear precipice. And it's especially injurious because we got a Democrat in the White House. And as I mentioned, that's why at RootsAction.org, we're launching this campaign to tell every member of Congress from constituents, we want you to demand an end to these war games and have genuine negotiations. And that demand should also be directed at the Biden White House. It is ridiculous for progressives to give a pass to Democrats in Congress. And there are so many Democrats, in, including in the leadership of the Progressive Caucus, that will not speak out against this rush towards the nuclear chicken game, escalating that game by the Biden White House. This is just irresponsible. Well, I, I'm old enough to remember Senator Wayne Morris in 1964. I skipped school to go to a hearing. He was a Democrat in the Senate, and he called out the madness from a Democrat in the Oval Office. Where are the senators and representatives in Congress willing and able to do that, even if the president is in their own party? This is a suicidal approach, taking everybody in in terms of the risks involved escalating risk. We, we start out by talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Informed experts say that this is at least as dangerous as that crisis in 1962, arguably much more dangerous. It's spread out over a longer period of time. So just because somebody has a D after their name, just because they're a member of the Progressive Caucus, that doesn't change the fact that their silence is deadly. And I would just urge all constituents not only go to rootsaction.org and message within one minute your senators and representative about the need to call off these war games and have genuine diplomacy, but then call them up. And I'm very sorry to say that in almost all instances, you will find that your senators and representatives in their current mindset will say, oh, no, we can't inter interfere with NATO. Well, this is a kind of madness. And well, if Norm the leaders Solomon, won't you, lead, then we have to have leadership Norm, from the grassroots. Norm, what do you say to those who say it's uh, Putin who's threatening uh, nuclear war? Um, you have, of course, President Biden speaking at a Democratic fundraiser, uh, saying we are facing Armageddon. You wrote a piece with Dan Ellsberg to avoid Armageddon. Don't modernize missiles, eliminate them. Uh, what do you say to those who say this is not in the U.S.'s control because Putin's the one threatening this? Well, absolutely. What Putin is doing is reckless and irresponsible and extremely dangerous. That doesn't change the fact that the United States is also in a game of nuclear chicken. That's reflected in these NATO nuclear war games going on right now. This is not a zero-sum game where we gain propaganda, the other side loses, or vice versa. There are concrete steps, specific real-world steps, that the United States government could take today to reduce the chances of nuclear war. That clearly is in the interest of everybody in this country and Five around seconds. the world. 
Yeah, we could take uh, ICBMs off of hair trigger alert. We could reinstate treaties that Bush and Trump pulled the U.S. out of unilaterally. This is up to us to do. On that note, we want to thank you for being with us, Norman Solomon, with the Institute for Public Accuracy and RootsAction.org. And we'll link to your piece. Don't just worry about nuclear war. Do something to prevent it. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Happy birthday again, Juan.